The Defense Department has been steadily developing artificial intelligence capabilities, but how should it go about purchasing AI tools? To get some ideas, the Government Accountability Office recently looked into how a handful of companies handle this. For what they found, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke to the GAO's Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisition, John Ludwigson. From our perspective, AI is a broad category of capabilities that provide the opportunity to have a machine do something that humans do. So one of the good examples that I think can give a good picture is the government collects a lot of data and that data needs to be sifted by a person into items of interest and items not of interest. A machine can do that conceivably faster than a person eventually. And so some of the efforts have been focused on trying to deploy AI in that kind of environment. There's a variety of different ways that AI functions, but essentially it is that notion of putting a machine in place of a human to do things. And what are the concerns or what were you all trying to look at when it came to defense entities purchasing AI software or components? So GAOs looked at AI a few different times over the years. Going back to 21, we did a broad look at sort of AI and sort of the application of, of AI across the government in what we refer to as our AI framework. And then in 22, we took a first look at examining DOD's acquisition of AI and the things that it was trying to do, really kind of a lay of the land piece, provided an opportunity to sort of describe the kinds of tasks that uh, DOD had set out for itself in terms of developing different types of AI and sort of a picture of how that was going across the department. And then most recently, the report that we released talks about the process of sort of more of the acquisition side of things. So when you think of AI, it can be either organically developed, so somebody in-house develops something, or you can hire a company to do it, or you can buy a product off the shelf. And so what we did in the most recent report was to look at how private companies who also have you know, considerable interest in putting machines in jobs to free humans to do other things, they are in the process of acquiring AI. And we, we reached out to a number of companies to understand how it is that those companies look at applying AI within their businesses and how they acquire it. And then we took that information and compared it to the way the department is doing it and made some suggestions about how that we think the department could improve its operations, trying to leverage the things that we outlined in the discussions with the private companies. That's interesting. So you were able to analyze the way that these companies are using AI and apply it, even though, you know, probably different missions uh, apply the same kind of ideas and techniques to uh, what the Defense Department does. Is, is it that all-encompassing? Private companies obviously have different interests than the Department of Defense. So, you know, there are banking entities that have interest in this. There are logistics companies that have interest in, in applying AI. There are ways to have machines do things that humans currently do where machines maybe can do it faster or more efficiently than having a person. Or as you may know, there it's difficult to get people for some tasks. And so a, a machine can replace the need to go acquire the machine for the person to use and, and hire a person to use that machine. You can put it AI into examine data, as I said, is a good example. And so what we tried to do was to 
take a step back from the particulars of what these companies were doing, but look at the general way in which they are trying to understand how to apply AI within their businesses. So we identified a number of things, kind of five categories from understanding the mission need. And the second category was making a business case for using AI and tailoring the contracting approach and testing and evaluating the proposed solutions. And finally, planning future efforts to use AI. So really those five categories, when you take a step back from the particulars the companies are looking at deploying AI within their businesses, this is the way that they're looking at that process from a, a you know 30,000 foot level. All right. And so based on what you heard from those companies, what kind of recommendations did you issue to DOD and the armed services? We identified that the department has a lot of efforts underway. There are a whole panoply of things that AI offers some opportunity to use within DOD's mission areas. And what we found was that there was no DOD-wide guidance on acquiring AI, and there was also no service-level guidance. And so what we did is we identified that we thought the Department of Defense should step in to establish some initial department-wide guidance, and that the services should develop their own service-specific guidance on how to acquire AI. And, and both of those pathways should be informed by the information that we had identified. And the department agreed with both of those categories of recommendations, actually four recommendations, one for DOD and then one for each of the three services. And you mentioned the use of AI to analyze data. Did DOD mention, you know, obviously what they were, what you're allowed to tell us, uh, <laughs> sure, any sure. other ways that they are utilizing AI and may actually contract out to a company to whether it's have them create their own AI entity or use their software? Well, you can, and really, uh, there's a variety of things that, that I'm, I can't, I won't talk about, but there, yeah. <laughs> you, when, when you when you think about AI and the application of it, you can look at the private sector and some companies have talked about self-driving cars or automated delivery mechanisms. And I think some of those ideas, this idea of autonomy is applicable to DOD when you think about it in terms of whether it's conveyance of materials. So delivery truck for, you know, company XYZ, that the Department of Defense needs to deliver materials in a variety of situations. Some of those very dangerous where uh, having a human in, a, in the vehicle delivering the, the material is very risky and, and dangerous to the person. If you had an AI capability for that, you would be able to keep the soldiers safer and use those soldiers for the other tasks, right? So, I mean, that's the, the basic idea. And I think that when you think about AI, this autonomy function, examining data, there are just an, a considerable number of instances where AI offers the opportunity to improve DOD's capabilities. So, you know, taking an example of looking at a battlefield, you have lots of things that you need to look at. You have lots of streams of data that give you an opportunity to have a sense of what's out there, so to speak, and identifying targets and those kinds of things. AI can be a, a pretty good way to sift through the data to identify objects of interest and, and data that is not of interest, so it doesn't contain an object of interest. I'm curious on what you, uh, it was mentioned a little bit in the report of what you all heard from companies when it came to the topic of intellectual property and data rights, just because, you know, you can, how far back can you base the data that's being used for an AI tool? Um, what did you hear from the companies when you asked them about that? 
data rights is one of the critical concepts that companies really try to think through. And from, from our perspective, it's something that DOD really needs to think about as well. Because when you think about tailoring this, this contracting approach, you need to understand what you're going to own. So if you're going to organically development develop it. So if you're a company and you have a cadre of, of people who are skilled in developing AI tools and training the AI tool with the data to produce outcomes that are what you're looking for, that then the company owns the intellectual property. If you are hiring a company to develop things, it gets a little more dicey and you need to make sure that you're clearly defining who owns what. And in some cases, a company might have some vestigial capability to start with and they're going to be hired to you know, use that capability with new data or, or make a tweak to make it more suitable for whatever the purpose is, that's where it gets a little bit more complicated to figure out who's going to own the intellectual property of the resulting product. For DOD, what, what, it ma- what matters, and really for private companies as well, is when you engage in these contracts, you get a capability, but if that capability is is really owned by somebody else, if the intellectual property is owned by somebody else, then you may be sort of locked in with that vendor. And that vendor then can charge you maybe a higher price than what the open market would, would provide if the intellectual property was yours. However, acquiring that intellectual property in the course of the contract can be more expensive. So these are complicated situations that you really need to think through at the front end, because once you've locked yourself in, if you haven't made clear who owns it, then you're going to end up probably in court figuring it out with a judge. John Ludwigson is Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions at the Government Accountability Office. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, 
I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be 
impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) So that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.